Hey everybody, and welcome to what I'm pretty sure as I record this is the fifth SFD short. I like to keep these particular intros brief, and I will, but I want you to know that I'll be setting up a Patreon to see if I can turn this podcast into more of a part-time job than the thing that I have to fit in around what actually earns my beans and tortillas. For anybody who doesn't know, Patreon is a way that you can support me regularly for very little cash. I'm still playing around with how I'll set it up, but it could be something as little as a buck a show. You'd set it up with your card or your PayPal or whatever, and you'd only be sending anything my way if I was actually producing something for you to listen to. And it would all happen automatically. Anyway, I'll keep you posted on that, but if it sounds appealing to you, try to hop on it quick when I do put it up, because for the first 30 days, helping me out will also send a bonus to Rob Morris, the guy that I had the conversation with a couple of weeks ago, because of the way Patreon referrals work. So, that out of the way, this is about alternate realities. My name's John, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. So I want to talk about alternate realities. Not the multiverse kind or the virtual kind, but the kind that exists all around us. I watched Spotlight, the movie, before I wrote the post that's about to become this podcast, and none of us were able to look away from that train wreck of an election or these hundred-odd days of early administration, so hopefully enough of us will have seen all three of them to tie this whole thing together. So everybody, and I mean everybody, lives in their own reality. From the time that you pop out of the womb, you begin aggregating a set of facts, or what seem to you to be facts, about the world around you. And that set of facts makes up your reality. 
The differences in our realities range from the sacred to the very mundane. Maybe I believe in God and you don't, or you've got a different one. Maybe you thought that meme dress was yellow and I thought it was blue. And those differences, small or large, change the ways that we live our lives and interact with each other. There may be some ultimate arbiter of what really is real, whether it's Plato's realm of the forms or an Abrahamic god or a grand unified theory of physics, but until one of those things speak up, we're each left with our own discrete perceptions of the world. And when our differences are small, like that dress, they don't impede our getting along. But when they get bigger, they begin to trip us up in proportion to the magnitude of the difference. Almost nobody in the 15th century really thought the world was flat, and it may have been a very long time in the 15th century since anybody had actually thought that. But if we imagine, for the sake of argument, that Ferdinand and Isabella, the king and queen of Spain in 1492, did think that the earth was flat, we can see how they and Christopher Columbus would have had a difficult time plotting a new route to India. In the same way, the flat earthers who sprang up along with the internet, the ones who believe that all national governments and all of the scientific establishment are, for some reason, dedicated to perpetuating the lie that the earth is round, and not actually a flat disk flying upwards through space, you can see how their view of society and their fellow man would begin to become warped by that belief. Now, stay with me here. But the purpose of standardized education, or one of its purposes, is to eliminate or to reduce the problem of disparate realities. At my university, we had required classes in theology and philosophy and history in the first couple of years, and the result was that when you got to upper-class seminars and somebody brought up Kant or Hegel or what had happened to bring about the collapse of the Roman Republic, everybody was on the same page, and you didn't have to explain or argue out those points again. This is one of the great advantages of conformist education that I didn't bring up in the episode on liberation theology, the third episode on Guatemala. I spent most of that episode on the power of conformist education to oppress people, but all the same, if everybody's taught the same thing, more or less, and that teaching reinforces that this particular society, whether that society is capitalist or socialist or communist, is the best, then students can get right to work integrating into that society. They can get a job and start at it without having to hash out the philosophical bases of capitalism or having to debate the split of labor and capital. And while that kind of education has an incredible power to dupe young people into conforming to a bad society, like maybe how it taught the entire early millennial generation to take out tens of thousands of dollars in college debt right before and during the recession, if the system that they're in is working out all right, that ability to jump right into it is a good thing. The danger, or the problem, that's apparent now is that we as a country have split into at least four, and probably more, distinct groups which subscribe to very different realities. And the differences between them make it difficult to tackle any problem we currently face. The great mass of the Democratic Party's base follows the U.S.'s official narrative most closely. What the government and the press tells you is true. The U.S. messes up occasionally, but is in general good. And if we could just get along with each other, things will keep improving the way they have for the last couple hundred years. The great mass of the GOP's base holds to a different view. This group, largely thanks to the efforts of the Republican Party itself, along with talk radio, Fox News, and the evangelical movement since Reagan's day, is deeply skeptical of the government, except in military matters and in foreign policy, if the president is Republican. 
That last bit was exemplified by efforts over the last couple of years to resuscitate George W. Bush, despite the Iraq War being the most openly corrupt conflict we've ever prosecuted, and the ongoing vociferous attacks on Obama's foreign policy, even though it was well thought out and even-handed almost to a fault. The Republican rank and file tore into Hillary because she was hawkish on humanitarian intervention, and the Trumpist base elected our current president in some significant part because he said stuff like, quote, However, unlike other candidates for the presidency, war and aggression will not be my first instinct. You cannot have a foreign policy without diplomacy. A superpower understands that caution and restraint are really truly signs of strength, unquote. But since the election, those two groups have thrown their positions away and crowed with joy when Trump sent hundreds of millions of dollars of Tomahawk missiles into the desert in Syria and launched his failed raid in Yemen. Which is to say that this group no longer has any fixed ideology. Not just their politics, but their literal understanding of reality has become a team sport defined by hating what Democrats support and loving whatever Republicans happen to do. As a facet of that warping, and just as dangerously, this group has lost its faith in the quote-unquote mainstream media, in the academy, and in science as an institution. Now, none of this is new, but I want you to recognize that it is huge, bigger than you might think. Because if you need to convince someone of something, and you can no longer use studies, books, peer-reviewed papers, articles from any of our most respected magazines or newspapers, or the documents of the U.S. government itself, what reliable sources are left to you? For example, it's a matter of well-established fact that Mexican immigrants and Syrian refugees commit fewer crimes than American citizens, and that the only people benefiting economically from illegal immigration aren't the immigrants themselves who would prefer to be legal, but the factory and business owners who make up the elite of the GOP. Those claims are backed up by the New York Times, which in the U.S. we call liberal, but worldwide would be conservative, and by Bloomberg, which even in the U.S. we call conservative. But the Republican base in the U.S. has become immune to that data. As soon as it begins to contradict the party line, it becomes invalidated. It's a new and terrifying situation when the Freedom Caucus becomes the arbiter of your epistemology. In the third group, on the fringe right, those same characteristics are magnified. For these folks, even Fox News has lost credit as a source, especially since Fox has started to tiptoe around the Russia investigation. And the paper of record for these people is an internet-based galaxy of blogs and Twitter accounts. Breitbart, for one, where our current Nazi-in-chief Steve Bannon used to work. Drudge, or Infowars, whose founder Alex Jones was set for a while to take on an advisory role with the president. All of them treat news as less a matter of fact and more a means to an end. This is the world in which Trump thrives, and it's why it was sometimes so hard to follow what he was saying in speeches and debates. In this reality, global warming is not only an exaggeration by climatologists or a mistake, but a plot cooked up by the Bilderberg Group, or the Council on Foreign Relations, or the Jews. Obama was actively collaborating with ISIS. Hillary had a degenerative disease. The UN was and is preparing to take over the United States, and 9-11 was not yet definitely, but most likely made to happen by the US government. Now, coming back around to common education, uh, another one of the benefits of sharing an informational bedrock is that when your and a friend's realities start to diverge, you can go back to the beginning to find a way to make them merge again. If, for example, I have a friend who's skeptical about global warming but not opposed to science, we can go way back, and because we both believe in the scientific method, 
analyze the question from first principles. We can agree that the greenhouse effect exists, since we see it work on Venus or in experimental settings right here on Earth. Then we can agree that the parts per million of carbon in the air is increasing, since we see it in the studies. We can agree that ice caps and glaciers everywhere are melting, because we read about it in The New Yorker. And if none of those things were happening, or didn't exist, my friend could point to their absence and convince me that climate change wasn't real, because we agree on basic norms of what a fact is and how to find one out. The problem now is not just that our realities have diverged, but we've lost, at least for this and the last and probably the next generation, any simple way to bring them back into line. To stick with climate change as an example, I have very intelligent friends who are convinced that it's not real, that the world is actually cooling, or that it's a complicated hoax perpetrated through some obscure mechanism for the benefit of climate scientists or the UN. And without agreement that universities and government agencies all over the world and news organizations generally work in good faith towards the truth, there's no way to convince these people otherwise. Now that's an intractable problem. But with this podcast and my blog, I'm trying to chip away at a slightly different one. My group, the one with which I share my reality, is on the far left. I don't mean the far left of Soviet apologism or strong Castro supporters. I occupy a reality that's kind of a mirror of the far right. My perceptions of the U.S. government, and of Western governments in general, is almost as different from that of the mass of the Democratic Party as Trump's basis is. The major difference is that I share an intellectual bedrock, what are facts and how do we arrive at them, with what's still the majority, I hope, of the American people and of people worldwide. The bases of my reality and the sources for this show are what 20 or 30 years ago everyone agreed were a legitimate wellspring of fact. Newspapers, scholarly articles, first-hand accounts, reports from America's Watch and Amnesty International and other NGOs, and documents from the U.S. government. And more importantly on that last one, not reports or press releases, but internal, classified, and now declassified documents, memos, and communiques. And this is where Spotlight comes in. For anybody who hasn't seen it, uh, Spotlight is the story of the eponymous news team at the Boston Globe investigating and then exposing widespread abuse of children by Catholic priests and efforts on the part of the church hierarchy to cover it all up. What becomes very clear to the characters in the third act is that none of this was particularly secret. Most of the Boston elite had some hand in the cover-up, and efforts to bring it to light on the part of victims and ex-priests were vigorously and sometimes brutally suppressed by that same elite by the church, and by their own paper, The Globe. Somebody, and in this case it's the very sympathetic Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, and Mark Ruffalo, just had to decide that bringing it to light would do more good than harm. To us watching, it seems like an obvious choice, and when through the first two acts of the movie, their editor leans on them to leave it alone, he seems like a sneering apologist for pedophiles. But it's not too hard to see the issue from his side. The Catholic Church was the social backbone of the city of Boston. It was what tied its poorest neighborhoods together, ran its schools, put a damper on crime, drummed up and administered its charities, and gave its citizens spiritual hope. It may have seemed to many of the folks who kept the scandals quiet an unsavory but obvious deal to make. Great good for comparatively little evil. And evil, what's more, perpetrated against orphans, juvenile delinquents, kids that weren't going to amount to anything anyway and it's not like they were killing them. Even if an individual member of that elite was starting to feel like it was the wrong choice, there were many otherwise good men who would lean on them, warn them away. 
Which brings us, finally, back to this show again. Nothing that I've said, from U.S.-sponsored genocide in the jungles of Guatemala to the solidly democratic nature of the regimes we toppled, to the fact that CIA men were present and sometimes taping in pretty much every torture prison of every client state we had for 50 years. None of it is groundbreaking. Noam Chomsky has been writing books about everything the U.S. has done wrong since the 1960s. Not most of the press, but some small part of it was telling the whole truth during Guatemala and Iran and Nicaragua, Indonesia, Vietnam, Cambodia, the Congo. The documents that prove it all aren't hidden or even sealed like the crucial cache of papers are in Spotlight. They're out in the open, in the National Archives, the Library of Congress, and since the early 2000s, on the internet, like the files on Guatemala that I pulled from the National Security Archives at George Washington University. That they aren't common knowledge comes down to that it's much easier to go along and get along, to believe what you hear in school and from the White House press secretary. And if and when somebody finds themselves in a position of power with an opportunity to change the narrative, to stop the military aid we're even now sending to Nicaragua, for instance, or trying to get the kind of stuff I'm talking about into the public school curriculum, there will always be a great number of otherwise good men leaning on that person to just leave it alone. Because it's not as if the Guatemalans or the Cambodians or the Congolese or the Iraqis or the Afghans were going to amount to anything anyway. Although I guess we can't say, at least we're not killing them. So what's the point? We're heading into what will be the most difficult century for the human race since the plague wiped out a third of Europe. If you subscribe it all to our common foundation, to science and established sources of fact, you have to admit at least the possibility that climate change and all of its attendant complications are real. Sea level rise wiping out the coasts, extreme weather tearing up our cities, drought and resource scarcity and famine driving people from the belt of the world towards our developed enclaves in the north and the south. Aside from climate change, we're looking at dwindling supplies of cheap petroleum, the depletion of mined fertilizers, and with them our entire system of industrialized agriculture and a unipolar world that, despite our ongoing luck, represents the least stable geopolitical situation in what might be centuries. We're looking at a world that is more and not less nuclear-armed with every passing year and without any Cold War framework to keep it in check. The increasing power of the internet to unite both good and bad people, and the ability therein to disrupt our infrastructure and economies is as literally unprecedented as it gets. A further mechanization and automation of work that might leave 40% of the workforce unemployed and leave the economy with no space for a traditional middle or even working class. Demographic forces that are going to turn Europe and Asia upside down. These are big, serious problems. Ones that for maybe the first time threaten not just the well-being of any one country or any one group of countries, but the human race at large. And the larger the problem, the more we need commonly held realities to come to fix them. If you and I are making biscuits, and you think we need to use baking soda, and I'm pretty sure it's baking powder, that's not such a big problem. But if you don't accept that I can appeal to the recipe, if you won't listen to me when I explain that biscuits don't have much acid to react with baking soda, and that powder has a heat-activated element, if you think that Clabber Girl is for globalist cucks and you body slam me and then add the soda, we're going to have some bad biscuits. The same goes, tongue-in-cheek or not, for every kind of problem. If the Republican base decides that whatever a craven, bootlicking Paul Ryan says must be the truth, and that it doesn't matter that the budget misplaced $2 trillion, or that the CBO says that the new GOP attack on American healthcare will leave more than 20 million people without insurance, we will never, never be able to solve those problems. 
We've already got a national and thoroughly conformist educational system, but those same Republican elites have done their best to hamstring it, to defund it, and to corrupt it to the point that kids unfortunate enough to come out of southern public schools graduate with serious doubts about science and where the Bible and a 6,000-year-old earth play into it. And as long as those kids keep growing up and electing Republicans, it seems pretty unlikely that that system will be able to pull us back from the brink. When I said that the problem was intractable, I meant it, and solutions are hard to discern, apart from a total destruction of the right in the US, from party to news network to individual blogs, and that seems both impossible and questionably desirable. But it will have to be something, because belief in compromise, for better or worse, belief in science as currently conceived, in tolerance and compassion, not in personal but national senses, are going to be necessary and soon. Compromise and agreement and brotherly love are the hippy-dippy values of my cohort, and they don't hold much currency in the world today, even on the far left. But unless we can agree to start trying to agree, unless we can agree to build some common basis for agreement, unless we can recover the common bedrock of reality that not so long ago we used to share, we are all, or some great part of us, literally going to die. Do you think we can turn it around? I... I am not so very sure. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.